A reading from the book of Ruth, chapter 2, verses 17 through 23. So Ruth gleaned in the field until evening. Then she threshed the barley she had gathered, and it amounted to about an ephah. She carried it back to town, and her mother-in-law saw how much she had gathered. Ruth also brought out and gave her what she had left over after she had eaten enough. Her mother-in-law asked her, Where did you glean today? Where did you work? Blessed be the man who took notice of you. Then Ruth told her mother-in-law about the one at whose place she had been working. The name of the man I worked with today is Boaz, she said. The Lord bless him, Naomi said to her daughter-in-law. He has not stopped showing his kindness to the living and the dead. She added, that man is our close relative. He is one of our guardian redeemers. Then Ruth the Moabite said, he even said to me, stay with my workers until they finish harvesting all my grain. Naomi said to Ruth, her daughter-in-law, it will be good for you, my daughter, to go with the women who work for him because in someone else's field you might be harmed. So Ruth stayed close to the women of Boaz to glean until the barley and wheat harvests were finished, and she lived with her mother-in-law. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let us pray. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of all our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. All good stories have a turning point. So think of the moment that Cinderella loses her shoe on the palace steps, or when Ebenezer Scrooge sees his name written on his gravestone or when Luke Skywalker refuses to kill his father, Darth Vader. A turning point occurs where a character or the situation changes in such a way that the resolution of the conflict begins to unfold. The Book of Ruth has its turning point too, and we find it in today's reading, right around verse 20, I would argue. But before we can really appreciate what makes it a turning point, we have to remember where we are in the story, and particularly where Naomi and Ruth have been. The first chapter of the Book of Ruth covers an extraordinary span of time. In it, Naomi, along with her husband and sons, move to Moab, and then eventually her husband dies. The sons marry Moabite women and are married for at least 10 years before both sons then die. In just the first five verses, we cover more than a decade of time. And then at some point, we don't know exactly how much later, Naomi, deep in the grief of having lost her husband and her children, decides to return to Israel. Maybe it was the next day. Maybe it was three years later. We just don't know. And there's a real gift, I think, in that not knowing. Because the reality is that when we are grieving, we don't know how long it will take for each of us to take the next step in the process of grief. We can't predict it, and it will be different for everyone. There is no timeline that can be put on our grief. 
and Naomi's grief is deep and severe. It is so overwhelming that she cries out when she comes back to Bethlehem. She cries out, call me Mara, which means bitter, for the Lord has dealt bitterly with me. She is convinced that God has turned against her and that there is no hope for her, no future for her. She is essentially just waiting to die. Yet there is no indication that anyone in the story ever actually calls Naomi Mara. The narrator and Boaz and all the townspeople continue to refer to her as Naomi. It's a subtle but I think beautiful testimony to how our community can help us hold on to the truth of our identity when we're having trouble holding on to it for ourselves. The townspeople don't roll their eyes at Naomi or tell her to stop being so dramatic. They let her fully express her feelings while they continue to call her Naomi, a name that sounds a lot like the word for sweet. It is this gentle reminder that sweetness is still possible in her life. The community around Naomi holds on to the possibility of a different reality than the one she is currently experiencing without trying to force her to get over her present grief or pain. And in that way, her name itself becomes a lifeline back to hope. And the slightest possibility of hope, the tiniest glimmer is what we see unfold in this passage, in this turning point. So last week, our passage left off with Ruth gleaning in Boaz's field. Boaz allows Ruth to glean by the regular harvesters and even commands his hired hands to intentionally drop some extra barley for her to pick up. What we discover in our passage this morning is that Ruth has gleaned an entire ephah of barley, which is the modern day equivalent of a bushel. And in case you're not up on your agricultural measurements, a bushel is about 48 pounds worth of barley. That, my friends, is a lot of barley. So Ruth comes home with all of this grain so much more than she or Naomi could have anticipated or even hoped. And then she takes out the leftovers from the lunch that Boaz had given her and gives those to Naomi as well. And when Naomi sees the abundance that Ruth has procured in a single day, she immediately asks where Ruth was gleaning. Naomi knows there is no way that Ruth could have come home with so much without someone showing her special favor. So Ruth tells Naomi everything, that she was gleaning in a field belonging to Boaz and that Boaz himself took special notice of her. And when Naomi hears this, she exclaims, the Lord bless him. He has not stopped showing his kindness or chesed to the living and the dead. That man is our close relative, one of our guardian redeemers. The guardian redeemer or kinsman redeemer was someone who in the Jewish law was required to redeem or to save a relative who had fallen into economic hardship. 
We'll talk more about all of that next week. But for now, it's enough to say that both in the amount of grain that Ruth returned home with and in the fact that Ruth happened to glean in the field belonging to their kinsman redeemer, Naomi sees hope that just maybe they won't have to fend for themselves by gleaning for the rest of their lives. In Ruth's experience in Boaz's field, Naomi catches just the faintest glimmer of hope, a tiny pinprick of light in the darkness, the slightest possibility that maybe, just maybe, God has not turned against her after all. And I can't help but wonder if Naomi's ability to shift from such overwhelming grief to this beginning of hope is possible, at least in part, because she had so fully entered into her grief. She hadn't tried to minimize her pain or to make her loss seem socially acceptable. She acknowledged the fullness of the loss both the loss of the relationships she had and the loss of the future that she had envisioned. And there is something about being able to look fully into the darkness that makes us better able to see the light when it comes. Carolyn Custis James has written, Grief sensitizes God's child to any evidence of God's presence. In the dark, we strain our eyes for the slightest sign of him. There is no doubt that Naomi's heart had been broken, completely and devastatingly broken. But her willingness to grieve so deeply has enabled her heart not just to be broken, but to be broken open and in doing so, to make space for something new to grow, to make space for hope. Hope is such a hard thing to wrap our heads and even our hearts around, because it isn't just wishful thinking or even optimism. It is something that is both more powerful and more vulnerable than that. Hope is the conviction, however brief, however tenuous, the conviction that things will not always be as they are now. Once, after a season of significant grief, I was describing to a friend how I was starting to feel something turning inside of me, starting to feel maybe just the tiniest kindling of hope. It's not like I've taken a step in a new direction, I told her. It's not even like I've pivoted, but it feels like I've shifted my weight the way you do when you're getting ready to move. It's like the step before the step. On several occasions, I've heard President Biden speak to people in grief about how there will come a time when the memory of a loved one brings a smile to your face before it brings tears to your eyes. And to me, those are words of deep hope, offering the glimpse, the promise to people in grief 
that their hearts will not always hurt so completely as they do in that moment. Admiral James Stockdale was the highest ranking American prisoner of war in the Hanoi Hilton, where he was held and tortured for over seven years. And he described what has been become known as the Stockdale Paradox. He said that the POWs who fared the worst were the optimists. They were the ones who said, we're going to be out by Christmas, he said. And Christmas would come and Christmas would go. Then they'd say, we're going to be out by Easter. And Easter would come and Easter would go. And then Thanksgiving, and then it would be Christmas again. And they died of a broken heart. The ones who made it, Stockdale said, were the ones who never lost faith in the end of the story. And then he said this, you must never confuse faith that you will prevail in the end, which you can never afford to lose, with the discipline to confront the most brutal facts of your current reality, whatever they may be. I'm not sure I have heard a better definition of hope, even if that is not the term that Stockdale used for it. Never losing faith in the end of the story, even as you face with brutal honesty the pain and hardship of the present. The second part of that definition is what makes hope so vulnerable. Because when we are honest about the pain of the present, we usually have to face the fact that in ourselves, we have the ability neither to endure it indefinitely nor to do much to change it. But the first part of the definition, never losing faith in the end of the story, that is what makes hope so powerful. Because as people who know and follow Jesus, we know how amazing the end of the story is. An empty tomb, life that triumphs over death, every tear wiped away and all things made new. And even more than that, we know the one who brings the story to its conclusion. That's why in Romans 5, Paul writes that hope does not disappoint us because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit that has been given to us. The power of hope is that it is the fruit not of our own spirit, but of God's spirit in us. Not dependent on the strength of our desire or our ability to effect change, but on the will and the power of the one who brought back from the dead our Lord Jesus Christ. And this is what makes true hope so much more powerful, more honest, and even more practical than mere optimism or wishful thinking. Because where optimism is dashed when circumstances stall or take a turn for the worse, hope perseveres. Which is exactly what we see happening at the end of chapter two. 
Ruth has had her incredible day of gleaning in Boaz's field, and Naomi has found in her good fortune the first evidence she's seen in years of God's loving kindness to her. Naomi rejoices, and there is so much promise, and certain circumstances finally seem to be shifting. And then the chapter ends with this. So Ruth stayed close to the women of Boaz to glean until the barley and wheat harvests were finished, and she lived with her mother-in-law. Can you hear it? The sound of breaks as the momentum of the story comes to a screeching halt. Finally, things had started to move in the right direction for Ruth and Naomi, and then we're left with this that Ruth kept gleaning for about two months, and then she and Naomi lived together, hoping they would be able to survive going forward on whatever she had managed to collect over those few weeks. At this point, despite the good fortune that Ruth had experienced by ending up in Boaz's fields, the circumstances themselves don't seem significantly more promising for Ruth and Naomi than they would have been if they just stayed in Moab. And isn't that the way it so often is in life? Finally, things start to move in the right direction, only to stall out or even reverse course. I think we're all probably feeling it somewhat with the pandemic right now. Just as things seemed about to return to something resembling normal, the Delta variant has case numbers spiking across the country. We're back to masking. Plans we'd made for the fall are being canceled. And most of all, thousands of more people are sick and dying. But that same pattern happens in all kinds of areas of our lives. From the healing work of therapy to learning a new skill like reading or playing the guitar, from house renovations to treatments for an illness. We know the feeling when the thrill of progress is replaced by the frustration of regress. And in those moments, it is easy for us to wonder if maybe our hope was a mistake. If maybe God wasn't doing what we thought God was doing, or if even somehow we have messed up God's plan. Because when our hope feels fragile, then God's providence can feel fragile too. And this is where I think the book of Ruth is such a gift to us. Because even though so much of the story remains to be seen, and even though life for Ruth and Naomi seems to be at a standstill of sorts, there are so many ways that these women and their story can help us hold on to hope. For one thing, they show us that even the tiniest glimpse of light when we've been living in the shadows can be enough to assure us that it will not always be like this, that something different is possible, and that while it may be vulnerable to hope, it is not foolish. 
Ruth and Naomi also remind us that we never see the full picture, even in our own story, let alone how our story fits with others. When Naomi sent Ruth out gleaning, she didn't know that Ruth would end up in Boaz's field. And when Ruth did find herself in Boaz's field, she didn't know that Boaz was a relative of Naomi's. And neither the women nor Boaz had any idea at this point how the story would ultimately end. So when we feel discouraged, when we cannot imagine a way forward, when we feel like God has at the least fallen asleep at the wheel, if not abandoned us altogether, the story of Ruth and Naomi can help us remember that the part of the picture that we see is never the whole picture and that God is writing a story bigger than any that we can imagine or comprehend. But above all, I think Ruth and Naomi help us remember that at the end of the day, hope is a gift. It is God's gift to us. It is the gift of the Spirit living in us, poured out in us. It is not up to us to conjure up hope or even to strengthen it. It is ours simply to ask for and to receive the grace to hold on to it. And the God who gives us the gift of hope is the God who promises that he will not break a bruised reed or extinguish a smoldering wick. A God who promises that the poor and the hungry and those who weep are the ones who are blessed. Ruth and Naomi remind us that hope is not the purview of the powerful, but the promise of the desperate. And that no matter what, when we find and root our hope in God, then that hope will never, never disappoint us. Thanks be to God. Amen.